My name is Tyler Reimchuzel. For those of you who are visiting today, I'm one of the elders here at Strong Tower. And as you know, our pastor, Pastor Chris Williamson, is on sabbatical. So it's great to have you uh, in the house this morning. But it's going to be even better when early next year you're up here. Uh, It's been a great privilege for the elders and some of the other leaders of the church to be able to have the pulpit. And uh, so today I'm going to be giving the message. Uh, You may wonder where that song at the end came from, and we'll get there. Um, I love that song. So I had the opportunity several years ago to present some research I had done in Australia. And so I had my trip paid for, and while I was there, I decided I'd do a little sightseeing. And so I had the opportunity to travel to what's called Lady Elliot Island, which is at the southernmost tip of the Great Barrier Reef. And I don't scuba dive, but I do snorkel. Uh, And so I had the opportunity to take a boat off the island and to go see the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, I'm swimming out, swimming out, swimming out, and all of a sudden, in comes the reef. And I've never gasped underwater, but that's what I did. Because if I could have this slide, this is what I saw. It's absolutely, unbelievably beautiful beautiful. The contrast of all the colors and the different animals there, the Great Barrier Reef stretches 1,400 miles long and covers 133,000 square miles. It can be seen from space. It's the largest single structure made by a living organism. There are 400 species of coral, 330 species of sea squirts. You can never have too many sea squirts. 500 species of marine algae and seaweed, not to mention 2,195 species of plants. 1.7 million birds visit the reef from 215 species, 1,500 species of fish, as well as countless species of turtles, frogs, snakes, dolphins, whales, and sharks. It is an absolutely awesome example of God's diversity. But even more beautiful than the Great Barrier Reef, and it's pretty beautiful is the diversity of God's family, the diversity of his church here on earth. And so today I wanna encourage us to be strong in our diversity. If I could have the next slide and I'll turn this on. So as you know, we're doing a series, Be Strong, and today I'd like to encourage you to be strong in our diversity. Most of the messages in this theme have been about what we as individuals should do. But in this particular case, it's not what we do as individuals, it's what we have to do together, and that makes it much more difficult. So I want to encourage us to be strong in our diversity. And the first passage I want to read that emphasizes this is from Galatians. So Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, don't cease to exist, but they are of secondary importance when you are in the body and the family of Christ. So the analogy in this particular passage is about a family. It's a very intimate example because being part of God, being identified with Jesus Christ is very intimate. And so he uses a very intimate example. So why is this here? 
Why does Paul write about it? I think he writes about it because it was radical in that day, and it's even radical today. The things that you identify yourself with in this life are secondary to being identified with Christ. And so I want to challenge you. How are you identified? How do you think of yourself? It's hard. We have a lot of biases that I'm going to talk about in a little while. But he wants us to be identified as a family member of his family. What group do you identify with? Do you see yourself as a man or a woman? You are. That's okay. Do you see yourself as a father, a mother, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, some relationship in a family here on earth? You are. Maybe you see yourself as a widow or a widower. Do you see yourself as representation of the upper class, middle class, or do you see yourself as poor? All of those things are real, but they have to be of secondary importance. Maybe you identify yourself by the type of music that you like. When I asked Jewel to sing that song that we ended with, I said, just remember, it's the guy in the bow tie who wants to sing that song. <laughs> do you identify yourself from your race or ethnicity, whether it's African American, Asian, Latino, Native American, or Caucasian? Maybe you identify yourself as by your hobby. Maybe you identify yourself politically as a Republican, a Democrat, or independent. Maybe from your job. Maybe your sports team. Maybe you're a fan of the Titans. I'm sorry. <laughs> but seriously, based on Galatians 3, God wants us to identify ourselves as being in his family primarily. And I want to give you an example of one of the ways that I identify myself, and it's because it's what people call me, right? Most people who know me really well call me Tyler, and that's my preference. But if I'm at work, I'm referred to as doctor. That comes with expectations that our society has bestowed on someone who's done a whole lot of school um, and taken a whole lot of tests. And there is an expectation that we as physicians behave in a certain way. I have the privilege of teaching medical students and residents, and we try to indoctrinate into them, quite frankly, that you represent a profession that's bigger than you individually. And the patient doesn't care what your personal view is about you individually. So I actually say to the students, you now have the obligation to keep your mouth shut when it comes to your personal opinions. And I say it just like that. That doesn't leave any room for questions, right? So I have the representation of a whole profession behind me, right? It doesn't mean that I cease to have those opinions, but I have to recognize that in the clinic and in the hospital, I represent something more than just my personal views, right? And that extends to if I speak to you at a restaurant or if I, speak, if I write something in an editorial, those letters at the end of your name mean something, and society bestows that. I guess I wish that we as Christians felt the same amount of pressure when we speak out. Are we representing our culture? Are we representing our upbringing? Or are we representing Christ's view to society? I kind of wish that sometimes we could say Christian Tyler, just like you say Dr. Reimschizel. Maybe we get there when we say brother or sister. But I would like to challenge you that we bestow upon others the way we act, the words that we say, 
should represent whose we are and should be closer identified to the Christ-like example and not all of those other groups that I mentioned. I would encourage you to not be a stereotype when you speak out. Be a Christian when you speak out. So if I could have the slides again, the next passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's a little bit longer. This is a different analogy. This is uh, an analogy I feel very comfortable with because it's the human body. (laughs) So it says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So let me just pause there. I didn't say in the earlier passage, but when he says Jews or Greeks, that is talking about race and ethnicity. When it says slave or free, he's talking about socioeconomic status. So he's being very explicit in the body of Christ, those things are secondary. They didn't do away with slavery, as you well know, but in the body of Christ, the slave and the slave owner were of equal value in God's eyes and in the church. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but many. So here's the problem. We're not all the same, but we still have to be unified in one, and that's the challenge. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Do you feel inferior because of your role in the body of Christ? You shouldn't, because you are very important to the unified functioning of the body of Christ. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Every one of you who is part of the body of Christ, God bestowed upon you the skill set, the attributes that he needs for you to contribute to the body of Christ. And when I say the body of Christ, I don't mean strong tower solely. I mean the greater body of Christ worldwide. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Do you have an attitude that you are better than some other part of the body? That's arrogance and pride, and you should pray about it, because that is not a unification. That is not being under one in God. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. Yeah, they get honor in this life. They don't need to get any special honor in the church. The church needs to focus on the less honorable and the unpresentable. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So how are we doing at Strong Tower? When our membership weeps and mourns, do you weep and mourn with them? When they celebrate successes, do you know them well enough to celebrate with them? Do you know other Christians outside of this group of people who when they mourn or celebrate, you mourn and celebrate with them? Now, I'm pretty sure that for those of us who are members of Strong Tower, we do not have overt racism. I'm pretty sure of that. I think this would be a hard environment to work in if we did. But we may have other prejudices that we need to address. 
What I'm going to say now does not apply to people who are prejudiced or racist and take pride in it. Although some of the techniques that I'll talk about how to address that may apply, I'm not really talking to those individuals. But I am talking to all of us because all of us have unconscious biases and prejudices that we aren't fully aware of. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. It turns out that the cards are stacked against us. Our background, the neighborhood we grew up in, how our parents said things, how our school did things, all of that influences how we respond on a daily basis to what happens when we see people who don't look like us. So this has to do with a concept called um, the fact that we have two thinking, two different types of brains. So this is a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. He won the Nobel Prize for his work. And he uh, and many others have suggested that we have two different ways of addressing situations. One of those is a slow, methodical way that we reason and we go through detailed analysis and we come to a decision. That's great. Unfortunately, it's exceedingly rarely used. <laughs> Most... <laughs> That wasn't supposed to be funny, but I guess it is kind of funny, actually. Uh, most of the time, we use our fast brain. It's very quick. So some of you might have read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. We are rapidly making judgments, of which we are unconscious. It's really important you know this. We do not register that we are doing it. We make decisions. We act on them in a completely unconscious manner. That's the fast brain. Most of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, we are not conscious of. So let me show you some examples. What do you see? Say it. ABC, good. What do you see? 12, 13, 14. Now just a minute. What's this? Uh. So back in the context, right, that was ABC, it's the exact same image, now it's 12, 13, 14. Is that a B or is it a 13? Yes. Your answer is yes. Here's the example. Some people see that and are certain it's a B, and other people see it and are certain it's a 13. And what I would encourage you to do is say, in the context, sometimes it's a B and sometimes it's a 13, right? And hopefully we as Christians who are trying to expand God's diverse kingdom will recognize that some people see things one way and some people see the other way. And it's not that one is right and it's one is wrong. They're both right in a particular context once you understand the context. All right? Let me do another one. Oh, let's not do that yet. Um, so uh, I want everyone to say silk. I want you to spell silk. Good. Say it again five times. Ooh, that got like a mantra. Okay, so stop. Good. What do cows drink? No, they do not. They drink water. <laughs> so, <laughs> that worked beautifully. I just don't think it could have worked better, actually. 
if I frame it, if I prime you one way, you will say something immediately, right? And I told you there's this way over here that was very slow and thinking. I warned you, you should have used that side of your brain. But no, you just spouted off with absolute confidence. All right, those are, those are fun examples. But does it happen in real life? Does it really happen? Yes, it does. It happens in the realm of politics. I'm just going to give you a bunch of examples here. Balu and Todorov showed subjects pictures of candidates for Senate. They were running for Senate or they were running for governor in 2006. The picture itself was shown for less than a second. They then asked the subjects, who do you think is most competent and trustworthy? Based on the responses, they predicted 72% of the time who won the Senate race and 68% of the time who won the governor's race. That's not good. We're making decisions just like that about something pretty important like who runs the state or who represents us in Washington, D.C. It's not just in the realm of politics. It's also among gender. So there's an example uh, that Joe Handelsman from Howard Hughes Medical Institute did. He created a job application for a lab manager. And he asked 122 professors to review the application and then they were going to ask some questions. For half of the applications, the person applying was named John. And for the other half, the person applying was named Jennifer. And that was the only difference in the application. They asked the professors, on a scale of one to seven, how strong of a candidate is this person? John got a four out of seven. Jennifer got a 3.3 out of seven. And you say, well, that's kind of close. It isn't if you're Jennifer. <laughs> In addition, they said they would be more likely to hire John and mentor him. So he gets ready for the next position, right? What salary would you offer John? On average, $30,328. Jennifer got almost $4,000 less, $26,508. Right? These are pretty sophisticated people, professors, making decisions, not... And if you said, do you think you're sexist? 100% of them, absolutely not. That's the point. They're making decisions they're not conscious of. It also happens in race. Wolfers and Price studied more than 600,000 observations of professional basketball teams. And the players were called foul. They got a foul. <clears throat> so 600,000 of those observations... It was from 1991 to 2003. White referees were more likely to call fouls against black players, and black referees were more likely to call fouls against white players. Though the discrepancy from black referees was not as great as from white referees. It doesn't just end there. They actually looked at how well the players did over the course of the game. For African-American players, if the cohort of referees were predominantly white, their data for that game was lower. Not just getting more fouls, but also things like points, rebounds, assists, and turnovers. And the same was true for white players who had predominantly African-American referees. This is why people say that the referees, the leadership among the sports teams should reflect the players, right? There is a photograph of two men fighting. One has a knife. If it's two white men, 
the vast majority of people correctly identify which man has the knife, the one on the right or the one on the left. But if it's two men, one white and one black, and the one holding the knife is a white man, the majority of respondents identify the person holding the knife as being African-American, and it doesn't matter if the respondent is white or black. It's been very well studied. So you may not like where this is going, but you can't argue with the data. And let me just tell you, the data is overwhelming. So this book called Everyday Bias by Howard Ross has so many examples in this in so many realms. We are making decisions so fast we don't realize it. The last one I'll use, which is very uh, concerning given what's happening in our side today, Justin Levinson is a professor of law and director of Culture and Jury Project who studied prospective jurors' ability to remember information. So they presented a case where there's some violence in the case, and this person is going to be a defendant in the court case. The only thing that's different about the story is in half the time the defendant was named William, and the other half the time the defendant was named Tyrone. It's the only thing that was different in the case in terms of the data. They also showed a picture. The picture was the same except Tyrone was um, computer. They, they used the computer to make him look African-American and William was made to look white. Same picture, but Tyrone was black. The jurors are more likely to remember aggressive details when Tyrone was the defendant. They can recall it, the, act, the, the way they're building. And it didn't matter if the respondent, if the potential juror was white or black. So there's actually a way to study this. We used to, we meaning not me, uh, <laughs> researchers who would study racial bias used to ask, do you think you're racist? Do you think you have bias, right? We should stop asking that question. I'm gonna show you the answer is yes, we are biased. All of us have biases about all kinds of things. It is par for the course and we need to learn how to manage it. And we'll get to that momentarily. Okay, so I wanna show you this thing called the implicit association test. Focus up here. So it says patient, but it doesn't have to be. It could just be a black individual or a white individual. So how this works is you are told that if they show you a picture of a black individual and you're on a computer screen, click A. And if they show you a picture here of a white individual, click L, right? So it's two different sides of the keyboard, as quickly as you can, just as, you know, you're not thinking about it. And then if they show you a bad word here, then click A on this side, they show you a pleasure, a good word like pleasure, click the right side, okay? So you go left, right, left, right, right, left, right, 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 and then they switch it on you. So here's the word, and then they switch it. So on the left side now, they put the white person or bad and the black person or good. This is getting at your implicit association. Do you associate black with good or black with bad? And then they do the difference, and it turns out that most people associate, I know you're gonna be surprised at this, black with bad and white with good. Because their time to do this takes longer. They get confused. Which side is it again? Or they make mistakes, right? So here's the data. This is, it says your data. This is not my data. I took this off of the web. Um, so this is if you have a strong preference for white people compared to black people, moderate preference, slight present, little to no. And this is all individuals. Almost all white individuals have a preference for white. Almost all. 40% of African Americans have a preference for white. 
40% of African Americans have a preference for black, and 20% have no preference at all. It's pretty powerful, right? They use this now a lot of times, just how quickly you're doing it. It's been re repeated over and over and over. And I decided to bring books along to, so you could, like, you know, 2016 reading list. Um, <clears throat> this is from a book called uh, Blind Spot by Menagee and Greedwald. They're the researchers at Harvard who developed this test called Implicit Association. You can go to the website and do this. It's free. They ask you a lot of information about who you are if you want to provide that information. And you can do it for race, gender, um, weight, obesity versus thin, all kinds of different things. Disability, it's really very powerful, actually. I do uh, leadership training at uh, Vanderbilt, and I actually have my students do this testing just so they have insight into where their biases are. All of us have these biases. You can't fix that, but you can try to mitigate it. And before we get to how we can try to mitigate it, I want to just pause and say, how can I be so confident that all of us have these? And the reason is because it's deeply embedded in our brain. We know that one part of our brain lights up when we see someone who looks like us, the in-group. And a different part of our brain lights up when we see somebody who doesn't look like us. And that could be race, gender, whatever. So this diagram here shows this. So this is a picture of your brain. And this is the part that lights up when we see somebody who looks different than us. This is the part of the brain that lights up when you see somebody who's not like us. So that's a little hard to understand, right? Sort of three-dimensional. So I have this idea that this might be more helpful. So I brought along a brain. This is... A brain model. <laughs> Pastor Chris is like, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> All right, here's your brain, right? Sits like this. And I'm going to take the front part of it off. I took some of the other parts of it off, too. So I'll take this off. I don't know if the camera can show all this, but come on, dude. There we go. All right. So on that slide, you don't have to show the slide, but... Deep in our brain, right in here, the base of your brain, it's called the amygdala. This is what is activated when you see somebody that looks different. And behind it, in a very distinct, different place, is if we see the face of someone who looks like us. And then, up here, if we react in a certain way, subconsciously, in a way that's not how we were taught... This part of the brain will light up and say, now don't react that way because you're taught that you don't respond to somebody based on their gender or their race or their weight, right? And then over here, this is called the prefrontal lobe, this actually regulates how we actually respond. Down here, this is part of the limbic system. You may know what the limbic system helps with? Fear. It's the same part of the brain that is activated in fear. This is very important. For whatever reason, we can discuss that another time offline. The part of the brain that lights up when you see somebody who's different than you is the same part of the brain that's activated when you are scared. And we respond because that fear is primal. And we want to react to it. But the other parts of the brain that are more mature, this part of your brain doesn't fully mature until you're an adolescent or later regulates how you respond. 
So when you see people trying to activate your fear, read politicians, they are activating a very primal part of your brain that's very, very hard to suppress. Fortunately, when we are in an environment like Strong Tower, and hopefully the way we're training our children, we have a way that we can suppress that, but it takes time. And that's where I'm going now. How are we going to address this? So, I'm almost finished. How can we mitigate this bias? How do we actually activate those parts of our brain that are going to say, no, I'm not going to respond just like that out of fear. I don't have to be slave to my fear because I am secure in Christ. I am identified not by my external features, but who is in my soul. But that's not something that just happens in the amygdala, okay? That's going to take some time. And so we need to slow the whole decision process down and how we react. The first thing is to recognize that bias is a normal part of every human encounter we have. When somebody says, no, I didn't do that because I was prejudiced, that's wrong. We all have biases. We should own up to it and not feel bad when we have them. We should feel bad when we react and we respond that is solely based on the primal fear part of our brain. That's the problem. When people say, you know what, when I see an African-American man, I don't notice their race. Yes, you do. That's like saying, when I see a man in a bow tie, I don't notice the bow tie. Really? Come on, it's a nice bow tie. They think that not noticing is somehow real, first of all, which it isn't. And that noticing differences is bad. It isn't bad. It's if you respond based on that. It's when you categorize a whole group of people based on external things that don't matter. That's what's bad. It isn't noticing the difference. That'd be like saying, no, I don't notice that that's a hand and that's a foot. No, you notice that we have different roles. We can value them in the role that they're in. We can celebrate the diversity. So the first thing is to acknowledge it exists. Then you should slow down for self-observation. One of the authors talks about shining a flashlight on your own thinking. Why are you doing this? Right? Because remember, that part of your amygdala that's doing it like that, you're not conscious of it. Right? And so you have to slow down and sort of think through it. Why do I react the way to do, I do? Why am I uncomfortable in this situation? Once you slow everything down, it's then really important to maintain a healthy skepticism of your point of view. Why do I view... What's happening between the interactions with police officers and African-American men differently than somebody else at Strong Tower who looks different than I am? Right? It doesn't mean you're wrong, but you're probably not 100% correct because you are only seeing the world through your perspective, your limited lens. And you should have a healthy skepticism that you may be treated differently because of it, because I gave you a whole bunch of examples that we are doing it all the time, right? I tried to find the quote, and I couldn't find it. Some of you may know it, where they asked a governmental official if he's ever experienced racism, and he said, daily. And I think that's right. All the time, right? If you read about Muslims now, how they're training their children to act even better than every other child. Don't give them any reason to lash out at you. It won't matter. It's going to happen anyway. But I can see as a parent that you want to train your child just do your best. Please don't misbehave, 
right? My understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, since I'm not African-American, is in the African-American community, that's called a black tax. It's this idea that you have to go above and beyond, right? And if I'm saying something right now that you don't agree with and you happen not to be from a minority, pause, have a healthy skepticism. All right, next. I better move on. Uh, Consider and seek to understand perspectives from others. Consider and seek out. Seek it out, right? I have to say, I am not up here because I can say I had lived or was raised in a very diverse culture. I grew up in rural Indiana, right? Some people I know it upsets people to say, well, I had a black friend growing up. And that's really, you should not say that. I didn't, okay? I didn't. I was only around people who were white, of a very similar political persuasion and religious persuasion. It wasn't until I got to high school and then college. But I think a big part of it, there's two things, probably a lot more, but two things. One is, um, I felt like my identity was in Christ, and I did not have to defend anything about who I was, right? I was learning all the time. There's a lot of things I don't know. Even today, I'm still learning, right? And I don't, I don't think that's a problem because we all have these things that we need to learn. And the other part of it is I actually feel like it's just important to just sit and listen, right? And just trust that the person who's saying that is not trying to deceive you. It's real. It's real. And your perspective is not less valid. It's just incomplete. Okay. Engage with groups you may not know very well. That's the huddle groups, right? That's being part of our children's ministry, our music ministry. It's being involved in the church where there's diversity. And so seek that out. Be part of it. And lastly, um, summarizing a lot from this book, but you'll just have to read it, this one, Everyday Bias. He talks about how groups should function. It's essential that we have diversity among the groups that represent Strong Tower because one view is never going to be enough. Let me use the example of our elders, right? We have diversity among the elders. One elder runs a not-for-profit mission, has a lot of experience with administration and oversight. Another elder has a lot of experience in personal finance and budgeting and helps enormously with the finance of this church. A third elder helps with, uh, has experience overseeing a large organization and has interpersonal skills and can use... um, graphics to represent how an organization functions, and the fourth element of wears bow ties. <laughs> and that's the diversity I contribute to. But seriously, we all can function as a much tighter unit because of the diversity, right? It's really, really important. Okay, so as I wrap up, um, I have some summary, a summary slide here. Oh, let's go back one slide. Viktor Frankl said, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space or time. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I would add in as a Christian that we need prayer and we need God's grace because our amygdala is going to keep firing. It doesn't matter how much time you spend with people who are different than you. It's still going to happen. You can't completely overcome that. 
And so I would just encourage all of us to pray for God's grace because what we're doing is the real thing, but it is on the firing line. It is on the firing line. This is hard work. It's not about us individually. It's about what we need to do together. And I know we're going to talk about this more at the beginning of the new year, but our church has undergone some struggles in the past year. People have come. We've moved, right? There's been some tension in personalities. But I'm convinced not to take away from any of that. Mistakes have made. We've done things that we could possibly do differently. But I am convinced that a main reason we are struggling today is because of our diversity. And Satan cannot like what we're doing. He cannot like it. We look like heaven, right? But I think we can do a lot better. So how can we do a lot better? And that's the last slide. I just want to summarize with this. What group do you identify with? Your primary identifying group should be as a Christian. And if you're not so sure what a Christian should do, if you're not so sure what your odor is like as a Christian, just to come back to a previous message I gave, be around other Christians. Spend time in the Word, right? Spend more time in the Word with other Christians than you do with those other groups that you identify with. How should we be functioning within the body of Christ? We should be diverse and unified as a single spiritual organism. What are your implicit or unconscious biases? You can use the implicit association test to identify them. Don't be a stereotype. If the demographers can predict who you're going to vote for, where you're going to eat, what you're going to shop, what you're going to buy, what you do at school, what major you go into, you are a stereotype. And you are identified more by all those other groups than you are by a Christian. What steps will you take to mitigate your biases? The first thing, I think, is to check your attitude, right? Do you trust the people you worship with? Do you value them as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Listen to them. And then, get involved in Strong Tower, because we need you. There's a lot of work going on that we need you. Join a huddle group. Do something in church that makes you uncomfortable. Be with people you're not usually with. They're here. Be with them. Seek them out. We have a need in the children's ministry. And like any other group where we have leaders, that group of people ministering to our children is really important that it has to be diverse. It must be diverse. A lot of the reading talks about if we do it right for little kids, if we get these biases right, their amygdala won't fire so much. We know that as a fact. What we're doing for the little children is essential for our mission of experiencing and explaining and expanding God's kingdom. We need you there. Get involved. There are various forms of diversity where we as a church could apply what we discussed. Those who are unpresentable, who are undesirable, not just for race and gender, but people with disabilities, people with mental health conditions, poor level of education, maybe even English as a second language. The church has had a mission to diversity from the very beginning. This is my shout out to Christmas. It's, this will, it's brief, but it's there. <laughs> when God came, he came in the form of a baby to a young single girl in a society in a setting that was poor and then the angels came to the shepherds who were like the most undesirables but he didn't stop there he also appeared to the wise men that's diversity 
And it should be that way today. Right? If you endorse the philosophy and the spirit of Christmas, then let's reach out to people who are different than us. The diverse church cannot any longer be a community-based church. There was an article in the New York Times on Friday about how neighborhoods are one of the most segregated areas in our society. It's much worse than it's ever been. We can't be a church that is simply reaching out to one neighborhood or we will not be diverse. Class divisions are growing worse. The achievement gap from children from rich versus poor families has increased by 30 to 40% over the last 25 years. Lack of educational opportunities in the 21st century are rampant, and in my opinion, it is a new form of slavery. I don't say that to minimize what slaves in this country experienced and the horrendous things that happened to them. I'm not saying to minimize that, but I think that this is a new example of how we keep people under control by not giving them education. <clears throat> Our approach... Uh, last few things I'll say is uh, I've avoided talking a lot about immigrants because I don't want this to become a, a political presentation. But I would just encourage us to think about how we would respond to immigrants from a Christian perspective, not out of fear. The worst thing that can happen to us, if I quote my pastor in St. Louis, who's a very diverse church, the worst thing that can happen is that we get killed. And then we go to heaven. So, I know atheists and Muslims who have greater compassion for people who are different than them than Christians. And that's not right. We have the love of Christ in us. And it, I know you're saying, well, we have to like fight for truth. We have to fight for truth. In the midst of Christ fighting for truth, he died for every single one of us. And I think we as a body need to show the sacrifice and the dying part first before we get to the truth part. So I finished, or I started rather, with the Great Barrier Reef. It's absolutely beautiful. But I'm convinced that by God's grace, if we identify our own biases, we work together to mitigate them, we can be just as beautiful, if not more beautiful, to people who are desperately seeking hope, who are desperately need to know about Jesus Christ. We have that potential. And I pray that as we enter the new year and Pastor Chris comes back to be engaged, that we have so much work to do. Together we can, we can achieve truly miraculous things by God's grace. Praise be to him. Thank you for your attention.